Well, good morning. I, I know I'm a visitor here, but if you're a visitor, I, I know the church will be uh, really welcoming you here. And uh, thank you again for your warm welcome to us here this morning. If you could um, grab a Bible, if you've got one, and please turn up Genesis chapter 12. Just going to read. Uh, we're going to be looking at Genesis 12, 1 to 3 this morning. Going to read a few verses from the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. And then uh, I'll pray before we begin. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to read from verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. And they arrived there. As we come to look at God's word together, shall we pray? Lord God, sovereign creator of all things, we want to magnify your name and praise you this morning for the things that we've been singing about. We thank you that you're a God who makes massive promises. And we thank you too that you always keep them. And as we come to this really, really important part of scripture, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand what it means, not just in our minds, but it would transform our lives, that we would believe these truths deeply. Please help me by your spirit to explain them clearly. Please help each of us to learn from them. And we pray that we'd leave as a church encouraged this morning because of what you say to us now. I pray this for the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Great. Well, have you ever uh, heard that phrase, um, over-promise and under-deliver? It's a sort of mantra that CIS uses all the time, Christians in Sport. It's a thing you hear in the boardroom. Uh, you might hear it in the kind of service industry. You don't want to over-promise and under-deliver. Anyone remember this advert here? Do you remember that? The Daz Doorstep Challenge. Takes us back a few years. This funny bloke rocks up at someone's door, rings the doorbell, and he's got his uh, box of dows with him. 
And if you remember the advert, the idea is that the mother comes out with the grubby little son who's been playing football with the perfect white shirt on, like this one, and uh, no other washing powder can get it clean, but Daz can. And it makes this massive great big promise. So in goes the rugby shirt, in goes the Daz, and then out comes the shirt, and it's whiter than when the, the mum bought it. Now, I played rugby all my life when I was growing up. My mum's never got any of my shirts clean again. Not with Daz, not with bleach, not with anything. Uh, but I think, think I thought about this week. Kind of all the things that you can buy in the shops, they're kind of like products, aren't they? Which make promises. But I think, actually, we experience in our life all the time promises, big promises that are made, but often which under-deliver. Have you experienced that before? And I think the problem with this is that we're then growing up in a culture where promises don't really mean what we want them to mean. I mean, we all think that promises are a good thing until we need to break them. And then it's not that big a deal because promises get broken, don't they? But if we live in a culture where promises are devalued, we don't seem to care when they get broken. And the story is told of a, a lady and her husband. And the husband was ill, terminally ill, and uh, he was soon to die. But he asked his wife to promise him that just before he, when he dies, she would take all his money, put it in a box, and place it in the coffin with him. Because he said, I want to take this with me to heaven. Well, the wife agreed. And shortly later, the husband died. And they were at the funeral. And just before the undertakers came to take the coffin away, the wife, as she promised, got up, took a box, walked over to the coffin, and put it inside. I got back to her seat, and her friend kind of put an arm around her and said, tell me, you, you didn't really put all of your money in the coffin for your husband? She was like, yeah, sure I did. I'm a Christian. I can't lie. And the friend said, are you serious? You've put all of your money in your dead husband's coffin? She goes, yeah. I wrote him a cheque. And if he can cash it, he can have it. <laughs> and that's the kind of attitude that we have to promises. We, we kind of make them, but we don't really mean them. And if we need to break them, that's okay. Well, if that's a culture we live in, what happens when we come to the promises of God? Do we treat them in the same kind of a way? Is God a bit like Daz? Over-promise, under-deliver. He makes these amazing promises. We love them, but he just doesn't deliver when he needs to. What do we make of that? Well, I want to introduce you to a man called Abraham. If you've heard of Abraham, it's the same person. He just had a different name earlier in his life. Uh, he was living 4,000 years ago. So 2,000 years before Jesus, 4,000 years before us. And he was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. That's kind of southeast Iraq. So you can kind of picture where he was. If you know the Bible story, chapter 11 in Genesis is a real problem. Mankind continue to rebel against God and build this massive great tower to make a name for themselves because they want to be remembered as great. They don't care about the worship of God as great. So in God's anger, rather like the flood, he judges mankind. He confuses their language so they can't keep building and he scatters them all over the world. So chapter 11 is a bit of a mess. But by chapter 12, you think things are going to settle down again. Abraham's there with his family. He's beginning to feel, okay, things have been really messy up to now, but maybe he can begin to settle down. And we read in the story, he's there with a small family and it's the place he's familiar with. He's probably 70-something, thinking about retiring soon. But God's got other ideas. Do you see in uh, chapter 11, verse 31? Abraham leaves with his wife Sarai, nephew Lot, and father Terah, and they head out towards Canaan. Well, what had God said to Abraham to make him want to give up everything and just go? I mean, who of us would do that? 
What did he said? Well, chapter 12 tells us. Have a notice there. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram. Let's work through what he had said to Abram. First thing, verse 1. Go. Abram, go. Leave everything you know. Your family, your inheritance, your possessions, familiarity. Just go. You can imagine Abram having this kind of John McEnroe moment, can't you? God, be serious, God. What? Give it all up and just go? Where are we going? I don't know. But God continues. Verse 2. Abram, I will make you into a great nation. And Abram's probably thinking, I'm not sure about this. God, do you realise I'm 75 and my wife's barren? She can't have children. Great nation? But God just continues. I'll bless you and I will make your name great. Perhaps Abraham was thinking, yeah, the greatest idiot who's ever lived. I'm just going to give up everything and go? But God just continues. And you will be a blessing. That chance. But he continues. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. Well, if I was Abraham, I'd stop listening at this point. But God just continues. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You'd think Abraham at this point would say, okay God, what's going on? What's, what's the, where's the catch? What are you playing at? This is getting ridiculous. I know you can make great promises, but this is just stupid. Unbelievable promises. Ridiculous promises, really. Think about it. This is ridiculous, isn't it? But they're promises that God makes. Are they going to be like that? Over-promise, under-deliver? Well, we have to wait and see. Before we go on, just notice a few things from this passage. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 26. When Noah's name first comes, uh, when Abraham's name first comes up, it just appears in a list with his two brothers. He's kind of just an ordinary bloke, isn't he? We don't really know much about him, but there he is. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 31. God calls them to head towards Canaan. The journey and the route they're going to take is getting on for a thousand miles. That's a big journey. Have a look at verse 30 of chapter 11. Sarai was barren. She couldn't have children. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 12. Abraham was 75 years old. So here's a bloke who's got no map, he's got no itinerary, he's got no travel agent, he hasn't got the scriptures, he hasn't got a pastor, he hasn't got a church, he hasn't got a sat-nav, the cross and resurrection won't happen for another 2,000 years to prove that the promises of God are true. He's just got the word of God. That's all he's got. It's actually staggering that God would just call this ordinary man and make these kind of promises to him. And we're left thinking, what in the world is going on? Now, in the interview earlier, I was just saying that I really love sport. I love being outdoors as well. Um, if you've heard of Penn Haddo, he's the famous explorer. I'm quite a close relative of his. But my favourite explorer is a man called Ernest Shackleton. Uh, in uh, 1907, he led a famous trip to the Antarctic to try and discover the South Pole. Now, I love reading his books. Uh, the, the school I went to in Bath, uh, one of the sledges he led the expedition with is hanging up on the wall. Uh, well, it's reported that when Shackleton wanted to gather together a group of men to come with him to the South Pole, it's reported this is the advert that came up in the paper. Just have a read of this.
Anyone coming? You want to come with me? I can't promise you anything. I can just promise you hardship and cold nights, and you probably won't come home. Do you want to come? That's ridiculous. But you see, that's kind of what it's like. Shackleton could not promise the men anything. When I make promises, I mean the promises I make, but I can't really prove to you that I'll be able to keep them. Not every time. I've got limited perspective. I've got limited understanding. I don't know the future. I can't control events. But when the God of the universe makes a promise, surely there's a difference. Just have a notice again, uh, when we look at these verses, have a look at verse 1. Notice three things when God makes this promise to Abraham. Look at verse 1. Go to the land I'll show you. That's emphatic. Go. This isn't Abraham. Abraham, uh, here's like a a manual, a, a travel brochure. Do you know the place up there called Canaan? It's a really nice holiday destination. You should flick through this with your family. If you like the look of it, one day you can head up there. He just says, go. There's no room for discussion. Because behind the promises of God, there's always a purpose. So God can just say to him, go. Because I know what's going to happen. I'm God. This is the second thing. This is a kind of obvious one. Who makes the promises to Abraham? Yeah, it's obvious. God. And maybe we're left thinking, well... God makes promises, that's nice. Just often think about what that means. God makes promises. The creator of the universe, who knows the number of hairs on your head, who gave you that individual fingerprint. God makes promises. And sometimes we read the promises of God. as well. Oh yeah, the promises of God, the promises of my wife, the promises of my children. And we group it all together. When God makes a promise, it's completely different. Notice the third thing. What certainty is Abraham given of the promises of God? In those three verses, seven times you get that repeated phrase, I will. I will. That's God who says that. Now, if you were Abraham at that point, just put yourself in his shoes. If you were Abraham at that point, I've been trying to do this this week and it's been kind of scary. How would you have responded? I just said, God, all right, I'm not 75, I'm a young guy, I've got loads of energy, but I'm not sure. I mean, do you really want me to go? Can you give us me a, a bit of itinerary, a bit of ideas? I'm not sure I can go there with my family. Uh, what would it be like? I haven't got any insurance. I don't know where we're going. I've never been there. Can you just tell me a bit more about it? God, do you really want me to go? I mean, someone else is much more suited. God... All right, I'll go, but not yet. I've just got to make some plans. I need to speak to my family. A couple more Christmases at home. I'll go later on. That's how I'd have responded. I'm sure that's how you'd respond. But if you think about it, when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, I want to be a follower of you, is he not calling you just like he called Abraham? It's the same call. He's saying, are you going to be ready to come wherever I take you, whatever it will cost you? I'm sure you know the the well-known verses in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where Jesus speaks to his disciples. They're challenging words, but he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's Jesus' call. If you want to be a Christian, that's the call he has for you in your life, and it's massive. So maybe you sit here this morning and say, well, okay, but how am I going to do that? How am I going to just be prepared to give up anything to follow my God? How do I do that? 
I guess we're all thinking that in some way in our mind. Well, let me explain. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see commands all the time. Do you know some of the commands? Go, believe, repent, follow, do not be anxious. They're commands. And whenever we see commands in life, here's the commands. What do we want? Reasons. God says go, and I say, why? God says come, and I say, where are we going? God says believe, and I say, but. There's always commands. We want reasons. What does God give? Promises. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Here's the the command. Believe in the Lord Jesus. What's the promise? You will be saved. Or uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptised. That's the command. What's the promise? And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or, Or one that many of us might know, a slightly longer one from Philippians 4. Command. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Promise? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Command. We want a reason. God gives a promise. And do you not see that in chapter 12? Go! And I will. I will. I will. And then you read verse 4, isn't it remarkable? So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him. It's just a staggering story, isn't it? Okay, maybe I'll I'll try and read your mind again. Perhaps just sitting there, I I was as I was preparing, saying, okay, but I still don't think I can do it. Maybe we say something like, I just wish I could be like Abraham. I wish I could have more faith. We say that all the time, don't we? I wish I could have more faith. Can I try and explain this to us? I think often we think of faith as a quantity thing. How much of it do I have? The Bible teaches that faith is an object thing. Where do I place my faith? We think of faith as a quantity thing. How much of it do I have? The Bible says faith is an object thing. Where do I place my faith? So before I went off to theological college, I spent some time working on a building site as a carpenter. Uh, it was a lovely time in the summer, building houses up on the roof, and there were always people putting the foundations in for houses around me. Well, can you imagine, as I was looking at these guys build the foundations, if someone came along and said, you know what, we can build a fantastic house by sand. I've got a lot of faith that we can do that. It makes a great house. And here we go, we've got some sand. And someone else comes along and goes, oh, I've got a bit more faith. I think we could build a skyscraper with some sand. How much faith have you got? Has one of you got a bit more faith than that? See, the point is, it doesn't matter how much faith I have. If the faith is placed in the wrong thing, it's not going to work, is it? I can't build a house out of sand. What do I need if I want to build a house? I need a brick. Something solid. And do you see the point? It doesn't matter if I have one brick or a thousand bricks. The point is, I've got a brick. Faith isn't a quantity thing. How much of it do I have? It's an object thing. Where do I place my faith? And amazingly, actually, if you think about it, haven't we all got faith? Every human being has faith. What do I mean? Well, even an atheist who doesn't even believe in the existence of God has faith. Faith that God doesn't exist. Trust that his or her worldview is correct and living that life that way is the best way to live. We've all got faith. The question is, where do we place it? 
And if we're there saying, well, I wish I could have more faith like Abraham, go and read the story of his life from chapter 12 to chapter 25 in Genesis. I'm not convinced Abraham has a lot of faith. There were moments where he exercised his faith in amazing ways, but there were also moments when he doubted God, when he took matters into his own hands. But the key thing for Abraham is that he was building with bricks, not with sand. It's not about how much of it you have, it's about where you place it. And in all the ups and downs of Abraham's life, he did cling to the promises of God. And it's when we cling to the promises of God that we actually become a part of them. It's often you read in the Bible these amazing truths and we kind of intellectually assent to them. We say, yeah, I believe that, but they seem to be like abstract truths out there, which I kind of know. What the Bible is really saying is, no, these are truths for you. They're truths for me. When, when God makes promises, they're not just promises out there somewhere. They're promises for you and you're part of them if you belong to him. They're promises for me and I belong to them. So what are we meant to do with a story like this? I mean, it's an amazing story, but are we meant to just look at Abraham and think, well, here's a guy who did have faith in the right place, he trusted God. Am I just meant to trust like Abraham did and try harder? The story is definitely in the Bible to encourage us as an example, but surely there's more going on than simply just be like Abraham, try harder. Well, what we need to do is understand the significance of this passage in the whole of Scripture. We've got a Bible, 66 different books. It's amazing. But there's actually one story through the whole Bible. It's a story of rescue. It's an exciting story. And the rest of the world thinks this book's a joke. But they haven't got a clue what this book's about. This book is about a story, a rescue story. So I want to try and give you the history of the entire world in about two minutes. Are you up for it? Because if we understand where Genesis 12 comes, and then what comes after, if we get how the whole picture works, we'll see just how significant this story is. So here we go. You'll know the story. If, if this is unfamiliar to you, you can think about it. If it's familiar to you, it's a reminder. But there you are in Genesis, chapter 1 and 2. And God made the world, and it was good. And then he made mankind, made in God's image, and he said it's very good, because we're made for a relationship with him. And then you get to Genesis 3, and everything goes wrong, because mankind starts doubting God, and starts doubting the goodness of God. So in anger and judgment, he casts them out of his presence, because of their sin. But he makes a promise at that point. He says, I'm one day going to send a redeemer who's going to reverse the curse to put things back to where they were originally. And so we carry on in Genesis and you get to chapter 4 and you're thinking, hang on a minute, nothing's getting any better. There's the first murder. Cain kills Abel. And you get to 6 to 8, the flood that the children are thinking about now. And because of man's wickedness, God sends this great flood to wipe everyone out apart from one family. And then you get Babel, chapter 11, the great tower that's built as people want to make a name for themselves. I mean, it's tiring, isn't it? That's exhausting. Eleven chapters of mess. But it's into the mess that Abraham is called. This ordinary bloke. And God makes a promise to him. Chapter 12 in Genesis. But then after the chapter 12, there's a famine and they end up... I'll come back here, I'm running out of stage. Come back here. Genesis 12. There's a famine, they end up in Egypt, they escape, and they get to Sinai, the mountain, and God's law is given to them to help them to obey him. And they get near the edge of the promised land, and if they just obey God, they can enter into this amazing place he's promised. But they grumble, and they walk around in circles in the desert. You read about it in Numbers, it's depressing. 
whole generation is lost because they haven't trusted in the promises of God. But eventually they get into the land and God raises up these temporary rescuers called judges to help them and lead them, but they all fail and fall. And so God gives them more permanent leaders called kings. Some are rubbish, some are brilliant, but even the best ones, David and Solomon, they mess up. And you're left thinking, God, you made all those promises back then in the garden and then the massive promise to Abraham in in Genesis 12. I can't see it. When are you going to fulfill these promises? And the rest of the Bible continues and the prophets come trying to tell people to turn back to God. But doesn't everything change in the Gospels when the Lord Jesus Christ comes? The Apostle Paul wrote these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Absolutely staggering verse, which reminds us about all of this. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Isn't that an amazing promise? An amazing truth as well? What he's saying here is Jesus is the fulfilment of the promises made to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus walked, 4,000 years before us. Jesus is the fulfilment of those promises. Which means that when God made the promise to Abraham, he knew that Jesus would come and be the fulfilment of those promises. He knew that Jesus Christ is the only way that we can know God again. So if you read Genesis 1-11, to that mess, all the mess and chaos, five times you see the word curse, because the world is under God's curse, judged for sin. And then you get to chapter 12, and in those three verses, five times you see the word blessing. Isn't that the most glorious truth, that into the mess and chaos of a world under God's judgment, God sent his son to be a blessing. And if you look around this room, is this room not a testimony to the promises to Abraham being fulfilled in part? Just look around at people who know Christ. Hasn't God just started to gather together people scattered in the world who are under God's judgment who don't know him and bring him together into a church. What did he promise? I'll make you into a great nation. Well, this is the beginnings of it. Not because we're great people, but because God is drawing together people who didn't know him. And when we come together and gather as a church, what is God doing? He's blessing us. Does he not bless us as God's word is taught, as his spirit works in us, as we encourage each other? He said to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. And then as God gathers people who are scattered who didn't know him to a church and he blesses us. What's the purpose of the church then? Is it not to go out into the world to be a blessing? What does he promise to Abraham? You will be a great nation and I will bless you and you will be a blessing. So this church is a partial fulfilment of the promises made to Abraham. I hope you get excited about that. And isn't that exactly what we read about in the rest of the Bible? We go up to the Gospels. What's Acts all about? What are the letters all about? It's about the spread of the Gospel, the growth of the church. Genesis to Revelation. It's one story. And right at the heart of it is a promise God has made. A promise he made to Abraham 4,000 years ago, which is actually a promise for you and for me. I know as a church you're going through a period of transition 
the big building project that's been happening and hopefully you'll move into your building soon. Um, beginning to transition towards uh, Jeff retiring after serving you faithfully for many years. You've probably got changes in your own life, uh, children growing up, uh, changes in your families. There's change all the time. But if you know Christ, can I encourage you this morning with just three things? Will you trust that whatever this world offers you, Jesus Christ offers you more? I know that's so hard to believe sometimes, but it's true. We also trust that only in Jesus Christ is your eternal security, your eternal life secure. Only in Jesus Christ. And will you trust that the promises made to Abraham 4,000 years ago and fulfilled in the work of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago were promises made to you, promises made to me, but perhaps as well, there might be people who are here, maybe you know yet, you haven't yet put your trust in the promises of God. And you come to church and you listen in, but this isn't real and you don't own these promises for yourself. Or perhaps you know you put your trust in these promises a long time ago, but your heart's grown cold and you've become discouraged. If that's you, can you just picture there's like a little bird's nest in my hand? And there's a little, little bird here. And the bird sits in the nest and it's very comfortable because that's the world that it knows. But when God made a bird, he didn't make a bird to sit in a nest. It made a bird to fly. And when a bird flies, it becomes a real bird, doesn't it? And if the bird that's sitting in this comfortable, warm nest wants to experience what it's like to be a real bird, what's it got to do? It's got to stand up, walk to the edge of the nest, and it's got to take its first step and flap its wings and fly, seeing all the other people out there, all the other birds out there that are flying. But when the bird starts flying, it realises why it was created. And it's a little bit like that, I think, with us, if we haven't trusted in the promises of God. Perhaps we're sitting in this nest, and it's very comfortable, and it's the life that we know, but we don't know any better. But actually, God hasn't created us to stay in a nest, not knowing him. He's created us to fly, to flourish when we're in relationship with him. And just like the bird that has to take the first step out of a nest and flap its wings, perhaps there's someone here today who needs for the first time to trust in the promises of God to really experience what it means to be made in the image of God. As I finish, let me encourage you. We don't know what life will throw at us. And we were even praying just earlier about so many hard situations in the world and we may be a part of them, perhaps you're going through them now. We do not know what life will throw at us. But if you know Christ, is it not true that we do know the one who holds our life? That is an amazing promise. God is never, ever like Daz. Heavenly Father, your promises are staggering when we slow down enough to consider their depth and breadth. When we consider that you had a plan before the beginning of time to reconcile us back to yourself so that we can know you again. It blows our mind when we read a familiar passage and we learn new things about just how much you love us, how much you're prepared to sacrifice in the person of your son, so that we can become a part of your promises. We know there's nothing in, of our, in and of ourselves that is lovely, that would attract us to you, other than the fact you've just set your heart on us and you love us. And I thank you so much, Lord, that even though we live in a world where promises mean so little often, your promises never over-promise and under-deliver. 
Father God, so often we will struggle to trust these promises. We will probably live a life many ways like Abraham. Some days will be better than others. Some days we'll really struggle to trust your promises. But when we do, please help us to cling to them. To remember that you are the one who is faithful. You've called us to follow you and you will help us to keep following you. Help us to trust in your promises. Help us to be encouraged by the men and women who've gone before us. Help us to live as an example now for the younger generation who are coming behind us. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to cling to your promises, trusting that if we trust in you, we will be saved. And one day we will enjoy eternity with you forever. Thank you, Father God, for these amazing promises. May they be real in our hearts today and into the week ahead. Amen.